Today's reading starts from Acts chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned with reason in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, and well as in the market as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stodic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this blabber trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For, I, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands, as if he ever needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Well, thanks so much for having me today. I feel, I feel quite humbled by all the, the setup that people have, uh, trouble people have gone to to uh, help us understand this particular part of Acts today. So, um, thank you to Territory Dan and um, to Mike uh, for his prayers uh, for the Bible reading. Thanks so much, and the music too uh, this morning. It's sort of all dovetailed together into what we're looking at. I meant to say before too. 
Um, one of the things that we are trying to do as engagers, we realise we deal with one aspect of people's lives, not all their discipleship. So when people become Christians, we need to have partners who are churches and church communities who can help people who have become Christians grow. And one of the things that, by doing something like this today with you, is I get to know you a bit better, you get to know uh, Engage Work Faith, and hopefully we build that gospel partnership across our city and across South Australia. And it means that uh, I trust you with people who become Christians through workplace ministry um, who live around this region. I can recommend them to come to you, and that's, that's a good thing. I don't know whether you've ever found yourself having to kill time in a big city. Um, maybe you've been, you know, you just have to fill in the time, uh, you're waiting for people to catch up to you, or you're waiting for your family at an agreed landmark, or you're waiting for people to fly in and join you before you can take off on an adventure. But in Acts 17, verse 16, that is precisely what Paul is doing in the middle of Athens. He's killing time and he's waiting in this city. And what a city to be stuck in. I mean, this is the city that would have been described to him from his childhood. It was the cultural capital of the day. It lived off its past and though in his culture Rome was now eclipsing Athens, it was still the place where everybody had sort of built their their understanding and their cultural capital on. The nearest equivalent for me, I think, was arriving at this place in uh, London, St Pancras Station, and just walking along the platforms and realising that they were TGV trains that were heading off all over Europe from there that you could get on. I mean, a little bit different to going to Adelaide Station and getting a train to Seaford or something. It was just... It was just an amazing experience to go there for the first time and to realise that the place felt familiar to me. Like, you know, here were all the places on the Monopoly board that I'd grown up playing when I was a kid. Here was all the Bond movies and where they'd been filmed. Nursery rhymes, high school, history classes. That was amazing. Now, what did Paul see? when he got stuck in Athens, waiting for his friends to catch up so that they could resume their second missionary trip. Well, he could have been spellbound by the sheer splendour of the architecture, um, the history, the education of the place, but the beauty and the brilliance of the place did not dazzle him. Instead, what he saw was a city, he says, that was full of idols and bereft of the only true God who could rescue them. And the language in verse 16 is much, much more than just full of idols. It is smothered or drowning in idols. And here in this place were the images of Apollos, uh, the god of art and sport, Bacchus, the party god, Ares, the god of war, Hermes, the god of communication and travel, Aphrodite, the god of sex, stunning images, and they were made out of gold and silver and marble and ivory and made by some of the best sculptors of their day. And they were stunning. 
One historian joked that it was much easier to find a god in Athens than it was another human being if you went there. The word that Paul used for describing or seeing these idols is a little bit different to our word for look. It's much more than that. He was able to see underneath or discern what was happening. Paul looked and he saw, he looked beyond the physical statues and he saw a city that was undergirded by an idol factory that helped it to run recreationally, socially, economically. And that took a lot of discernment, a lot of looking. Now, a friend of mine runs a large city church in Melbourne and it attracts a lot of city workers. And uh, on, he told me about a meeting that he had with a young guy who had started coming to church, you know, sort of sitting up the back and then gradually moving closer and closer towards the front. He was a profile, high-profile investment banker in his 30s. He was rolling in money, had a penthouse in the Docklands. And after a while, this man became a Christian and he organised a meeting with my friend, the pastor. Uh, and at the meeting, they had a coffee and he slid a ring across the table to my friend. I said, what's, what's this about? He said, well, that ring is my membership to a high-class brothel in this city, which, although fun for a while, eventually owned my soul with sexual addiction. I don't want to go anywhere near that place again. You need to take this ring. Since I've met Jesus, I never want to step foot in that place again. It will destroy me. Now, your question is, what does a pastor do with such a ring? Well, I guess you've got to take it to Mordor and drop it into Mount Doom. (laughs) But you see, that ultimately, I think, is the same insight that Paul is getting here in Acts 17. It's a clarity which can only be arrived at by looking really hard. And see. If you want to know what are the idols at the bedrock of someone's life, or possibly even your own, you need to ask the question what if you took it away would cause that person to fall apart at the seams? What if you took it away would cause that person to fall apart at the seams? You know, there's nothing wrong with sport, a party, a nice home, holidays, health, relationships, good career. But absolutely, when they are at the core of who you are. See, Paul looked and he saw a city drowning in its idols. And what did he feel when he saw that? Well, verse 16 tells you. Great distress. So what's this emotion that he feels? Because really it, it's got a lot to do with everything else that he does from here on. It's translated as stirred up, provoked in spirit, but it's, it, it's not a sudden shot of anger. It's sort of like a deep, abiding rumbling that's growing inside of him. And it's a word that's associated with God in the Old Testament upon seeing his own people worshipping 
idols when the Jews do that in Exodus. So therefore Paul is sort of mirroring something of his, of the nature, the very nature of God himself at this point. He's indignant, he's jealous. Jealous, why jealous? Because he resents that these rivals, these poor class rivals, are taking the attention that only the God who is true should have. He's jealous. And jealousy can be a good or a bad thing, I know. You know, if it's, you know, wanting to be like somebody to have their, you know, their opportunities and their good looks and their opportunities, then that's an envy. It's a bad thing, I suppose. But it can be a good thing in a marriage when there's an intruder. It's good to be jealous then. In Isaiah 42, God says... I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to idols. So Paul is moved inwardly here, deeply, not by a bad temper, nor even by sheer obedience to the Great Commission, nor even because he's particularly compassionate about these people who are lost. But he's driven by a jealousy for the right honouring of Jesus in their lives. So, how do you channel those sort of deep rumblings if you have them like Paul? Well, let me take you through one possibility of what he could do. A few years ago, we got free tickets to go to the Garden of Unearthly Delights during the Fringe. And as we walked closer to the entrance, we were walking along, and there, chalked on the footpath, was the words, God is love. I thought, great, the Christians are out at the Fringe. But as we got closer towards the entrance, the messages got angrier. Turn to God. If you don't, you're going to hell. By the time we got to the gate, there were the preachers. They were ranting. They were in full flight. And frankly, I have to say, they were quite abusive. It was quite nerve-wracking going past them. Now, I guess that's certainly one option open to Paul in Athens that he could have taken after what he saw. Another might be to weep, you know, weep over the idolatry of the city. And maybe if it was us here in Adelaide, you know, we could have a good whinge, you know. This is supposed to be the city of churches. What a joke. But Paul's distress leads neither to ranting nor tears, but it drives him to engage with the people. Have a look at verse 17. He wants to connect when he sees this. He reasoned in the synagogue with the God-fearers on the Sabbath... But also note this, he disputed in the marketplace for the rest of the week. Now, here's a happy little holiday snap of the markets at Budapest. I've got to tell you, I have never been to a market where you could purchase any part of an animal that was there. It was, it was a phenomenal place. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. It's difficult to find an equivalent to today to what 
Athens marketplace was. But I can tell you this, it was more than just the consumption of goods. It was a place where everything was on sale. Ideologies, lifestyles, philosophies, religions, merchandise. If you wanted it, you could get it at the Athens market. And Paul takes the great news of Jesus into that very, very public space and he allows the gospel to be scrutinised and examined. And you know what? It actually scrubs up pretty well. What might be the equivalent of that marketplace for you guys? I mean, in this particular region. I, do, I don't live down here, but I know that that jetty in summer is just pumping with people. It's a gathering spot. Maybe it's a community market you've discovered. Maybe it's, and this is my nightmare, Westfield Marion. Maybe it's the Marion pub, maybe it's Twitter. But Paul goes there. He finds the place. And he reasons with the two prevailing philosophies of the day. The Epicureans, which, you know, their way of life was pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. And the Stoics, who basically they espoused a worldview that said, you know, you need to just suck it up with whatever the gods dish out to you in life. That's the, that's the way you'll cope. And Paul's engagement with these prevalent worldviews gets him hauled up in the end to the supreme council in the city, which is the Areopagus. Paul only models to us, I think, what Proverbs shows us, where you'll find wisdom. You won't find it locked up in a temple. You'll find it out crying on the streets. During COVID, and we all know what that was like in different ways, but we tried as an organisation, as a ministry, to stage an event on artificial intelligence. And I was convinced we had to do it at Lot 14. For those of you who don't know, that's the old hospital site. That's where they've relocated and made the hub for AI in South Australia. And so there's all these companies in there. And I thought, we've got to do it down there. If we're going to have a discussion of AI, we've got to have it where it's all happening. So I went down there, and as soon as they worked out that we weren't going to have a great big slam of AI, but we actually wanted to get a panel of experts together, and we wanted to think through some of the really big implications of what AI meant to us as human beings... They were in. They gave us the community rate. They got all the other people uh, connected over the hub to come on the night. It was an amazing evening. We had a fantastic panel of experts, not all of them Christians, but all able to uh, talk on that particular issue. And people were swapping business cards and people were putting their hands up saying, you know, if you want to talk to me about this afterwards. And here's some feedback that we had from one Christian who bought a friend. They said, M was engaged throughout the whole evening. The discussion of the concepts of humanity, love, mercy and forgiveness caught his interest, so much so that at his initiative, we went out for dinner straight afterwards. 
I reckon he'll find Dixon's Undeceptions podcast really interesting from here. So that, this sort of approach is very countercultural to what we're being told. Our world says, your faith, you can have it, but it's a very private thing and keep it to yourself in a little box. Don't bring it into the public square. Don't tell me whom I should worship. But Paul says, well, I think if people are out shopping, we should tell them that Jesus is the, is the way. Some people treat the gospel like it's a rare artwork. They keep it all locked up inside a museum or a church so that no one can deface it. But I think it's more akin to this. It's like the pigs in Rundle Moor. Those pigs are public art. You can walk past them. You can stop and have a selfie with them. Kids can crawl all over them and hang underneath them. But they have to stand up to public scrutiny. As Christians, we need to follow the Bible's lead at this point and not the culture. The Bible says your faith will transform you from top to bottom. So Engage wants to help you do that when it comes to your work. But there's lots more to you than that. It will lead you out into the marketplace. It has to. Do you take your faith out of here when you go? Or do you leave it at the door? When you leave your house in the morning, do you take your faith in Jesus with you when you go? In the future, we're going to have to do this more and more because there's going to be less people turning up to church for a look. We're going to have to represent Jesus when we're scattered out in the world. Paul saw underneath this city of idols, he was provoked, and it drove him to connect. And he wasn't obnoxious by the looks of things. He wasn't cowardly in proclaiming that truth. I find that the vast majority of people who have rejected the Christian faith, whom I meet, don't even know what they've said no to. They are ignorant. Do you understand why it's so important that the Christian faith, your Christian faith, makes it out there? To be examined, to be scrutinised in a public setting and not retreat from that responsibility and that privilege. So, finally, what did Paul say when he got the opportunity? It's really important to understand this is not all he said because we've got a summary of it here. We've got the highlights. But some people have criticised this particular story um, sermon in Acts because it doesn't mention Jesus dying on the cross. But I think, look, if you look back at verse 18, it's clear it's not the only occasion he's talked about Jesus and what he came to do in this city. So, what does he say when he gets his opportunity? Look at verse 23. First of all, he comments on the Athenians first before he talks about God. He says, gosh, 
you guys have such a capacity when it comes to gods. I mean, I was walking through your city and I found a god, uh, I found a, a statue to an unknown god. Great initiative. Should that god turn up? Well, actually he has. Let me explain him to you. Verse 24. This god that you put there in a statue, who's unknown, he's the god who's made everything. Not just little parts of the universe like the other ones. Any attempt to limit him to human man-made shelters is just ludicrous, he says. Verse 25. We don't build temples for God. God actually builds a world for us to live in. Verse 26. He's not a local deity belonging to a particular race or city or country or nation. In fact, he created all the nations from one human being and then he determined where they'd live across this world. Verse 28, we're in fact the children of God in the sense that we're made in God's image rather than God being captured in ours. He comes near to us, we run away from him. Verse 30, God has been patient with this up until now but he's calling on you to return to him as he will judge all of us on a day that he's appointed. Verse 31, that job he's given to the one he's resurrected, Jesus Christ, the only perfect man who could withstand the judgment of God and come back to life validating who he is. Jesus is now God's judge. Can you see what he's done? God made the heavens and the earth, he says. Can't be contained in a temple, in a human shelter that you build for him. God makes us in his image, not man makes him in, uh, making God in ours. We are the invention of God, not God the invention of us. God makes all people, people reduce him to localized, a localised idol. We judge which God will select. No, 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 no. God is going to judge everybody by the one person perfectly qualified, the resurrected Christ. Can you see at every point, this is a direct hit on their own idolatry, the nature of their own idolatry. It's brilliant. When you're confronted by a family member or a work friend or a city or a culture that's swamped by a sea of idols where there's varying opinions about who God is and what he is and what he isn't, what do you do? You do what Paul does. You paint a clearer picture of the living and true God. Now, what's the response? Verses 32 through to 34. Some people sneer. Some say, we'll hear you again on this. And some people believe. Well, the first is probably what we've come to expect for most of us. The rolling of the eyes. No explanation given. It's, it's really lazy. It's incredibly arrogant and it's dangerously ignorant. And I'm sure you've experienced it. But the next two are a surprise to us. Paul's proclamation leads to more engagement, not less. We think that speaking will close doors, not open them, don't we? But Paul says here that people are far more receptive to discussing God than they are hostile to God. Now, how does that work? There's a guy who goes to the same gym as me. He's from Brazil. 
and he was lamenting a while ago about how hard it is to get a permanent visa for he and his wife and their new child. Because, you know, they'd, they'd like to settle in Australia. They've been here now for over two years and um, they just want to make this home. And I was listening to him and I really felt uh, about his situation. I said, look, I, I, I took the risk and I said, for what it's worth, I'm a Christian, I'm going to pray for that visa. And his face lit up. Would you, he said. The next day, he came and found me where I was exercising. And he said, I told my wife what you said. And she said to tell you that when that visa comes, you are going to experience how Brazilians party. See, we think engaging people with the faith will close doors. The Bible keeps reminding us it can open them. How do you respond to a city full of idols? Callum makes four observations which I've been describing as we've worked through this. Four things that will help you move towards taking your faith into the public space. And that is this. Paul saw, he felt, he acted, and then he spoke. That sequence is important. He saw, he really saw, he felt, he acted, and he spoke. Maybe we don't speak because we haven't really tried to connect. Maybe we don't connect because we don't feel. And maybe we don't feel because we haven't really looked. What do you see? Tommy's a mainland Chinese atheist, I know. He's been in Australia a while. He's working, he was seconded here to uh, a business. I asked him how it's going on his work team. He said... Well, it is hard understanding Australian culture. But Bill loves the horses on my team. So on the weekend, I get the racing garden and I come in and I see Bill on Monday and I say, oh, what happened at Flemington in race eight? And he said, and Linda, Linda's into real estate. And so I read up on that over the weekend. I say, can you believe that a house went for over a million in Melrose Park? And then Maddie watches some soap opera that I don't understand and I say to her on Monday, do you think Kurt will leave Haley?" <laughs> and what he's doing is he's studying people in an attempt to understand them and what makes them tick. And I think that's a rebuke for Christians. Because we've got far more at stake than just trying to fit into a team. We live in a city calibrated towards meeting our desires and wishes. And though we got that put on hold a bit during COVID, it's back on the table for you to chase. World travel, backyard parties with, you know, an outdoor kitchen that's almost better than the indoor one, getting your kids 
into the right school and then move on. Now we've got to get the parents into the right aged care facility and then I've got to take the next step in my career, you know, make sure that I can juggle the mortgage properly through all this, hope that world conflict between Ukraine and Russia or Taiwan and China don't upset my plans along the way. See, that's what people are doing. And those anchors can, can so easily be kicked out from under them. And then what have they got? Do you need to feel that holy jealousy for the honour of Jesus in people's lives? That, you know, mere idols are getting what God should get in their lives. And does this provoke you to action? And what sort of action? Ambivalence, retreat, cynicism, or does it drive you to connect? To allow the gospel to be put under public scrutiny. That's neither cowardly nor push him. What do you say when you get there? You paint a bigger picture, clearer picture of who God is in a supermarket of God's on offer. What do you need to work on? See, feel, act, speak. Which part of that sequence could be your focus in the coming weeks? See, the Bible keeps reminding us that people aren't worship neutral. They either... There's only two types of people. Those who are giving themselves to the true and living God and those who are giving themselves to false ones. So can you see the idols that are capturing your friends and your family and your workmates? Because the God of Athens, the gods of Athens are alive and well. I mean... the People live for Aphrodite, the god of sex, the god of sport, Apollos, Bacchus, the god of parties. And these gods, they never will forgive you if you fail them. And they will never satisfy if you try to grasp at them. Les Murray, the poet, has this fantastic line in one of his poems. He says, The true god will give you his flesh and blood. False gods demands demands yours of you. True God will give you his flesh and blood. False gods demand yours of you. Time and time again. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to see the pervasive impact of idolatry in our world and in the places and the spaces that we inhabit. Help us to see, to really see what Paul saw, feel what he felt, to act 
and then speak. Amen.